We have been in Romans, perhaps you are aware of that, and we'll continue to be in it tonight. We're in Romans chapter 3, and we're taking pains to look at it verse by verse because we really want to get the contents, the substance of Romans right because we believe if we get it right, we won't be wrong. And that if we're wrong about Romans, we're probably going to be wrong about all manner of theological and spiritual things. Uh, This book is just stock full of profound information uh, provided for us by Almighty God. And so we are showing due respect for it by going real slow through it so as to milk it for all it's worth. And so as to get a good proper understanding of this doctrinal gem of the Bible. And so tonight, would you look with me just to three verses, Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. We'll look at 19, 20, and then 21. Romans chapter 3, verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Folks, that is a reference to Jewish people. The Jewish people were given and are under the law. It was given to them on Mount Sinai by Moses. God told Moses to do this. Inscribe the law on tablets, bring it down, and tell the people this is for them, guidelines for their lives. So Paul is saying those who are under the law, the Jews, he knows who he's speaking to, are responsible to live by it. Then he says, so that every mouth may be closed. He's saying, you Jewish people are quick, the Jews in his day, to to convict the Gentiles of being accountable and guilty before God. But so are you, because you have the law and are under it. The law is relevant to you. It speaks, it has a voice, and the voice of the law uh, quiets your voice. You have nothing to say, not you or the Gentiles. Gentiles don't have the privilege of the law as you do, but they have ample evidence of Almighty God through creation and the voice of their conscience. And so everyone was, is without excuse. So it says, so that every mouth, every Jewish mouth, every Gentile mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God. Folks, None of us have a proper defense before Almighty God. The law given by Moses, which the Jewish people valued but did not live by, the evidence of God in creation and in one's conscience, all of this renders us defenseless and guilty before Almighty God. Not one Gentile, not one Jew has a leg to stand on when we stand before Almighty God. The Jews are going to be convicted by the law, which they had but did not obey. And the Gentiles will be convicted of violation of their own conscience and the evidence of Almighty God in creation. And so Paul says, this is all so that every mouth may be closed. We simply have to listen to God one day pronounce upon us a verdict of guilty. And then Paul says in verse 20, all this is true because by the works of the law, that means living by an ethical system. In this case, specifically the law of Moses, but any religious code of ethics. Because by the works of the law, that means self-effort. That means good deeds. Nothing wrong with good deeds. However, by the works of your own goodness, by your own code of ethics, by the works of the law, no flesh, no human will be justified, rendered legally innocent 
and pardoned in the sight of Almighty God. Why not? For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's what it says. Through the law. Law of Moses in particular, and then any code of ethics comes the knowledge of sin. So I thought about this, and I said, well, I guess God just didn't realize what the effect of the law would be when he gave it to the Jews through Moses on Mount Sinai. I guess God labored under the misconception that the Jews, my people, would obey the law. I guess he was quite disappointed and surprised to find out they didn't quite make it. Otherwise, for sure, he wouldn't have given them to law, the law to live by if, in fact, they were not going to live by it, could not be justified by it. Therefore, the law is in vain. Why would God waste these perfectly good tablets? Why would he have Moses climb up on the mountain and all this kind of stuff? So I guess God doesn't know everything, does he? Wrong! He knew this. He saw it coming. He sees the end from the beginning. He's a timeless being. Are you kidding me? But he never gave the law as the means by which ancient Israel or modern-day Israel would be considered right in his eyes. Why? Because he knew there was something inherently wrong with the recipients of the law. Nothing wrong with the law. In fact, the law... The law pointed out their sin. The law defined it. They would not even have realized that they have a sin nature, but for the fact that this marvelous gift, this gift of the law of God, a reflection of his moral and ethical character, they wouldn't realize how immoral and unethical they are if they didn't have the law by which they were trying to live and failed miserably. So the law is like a mirror. God knew why he gave it. It wasn't that they would be justified in his eyes by it, but that they would see how sinful they are. It's like a mirror. But a mirror can't change the person looking into it. A mirror. So today I was having a conversation with Ron Ingram. Do you know him? He's our media director. He's a great guy. I thought he was until today. So, so uh, and thank you for letting me get this out. So, so I was talking to Ron, and he said, hey, could I speak to you just for a second as a producer? You can speak to me as anything you want to. You know, like the producer of everything we do. I said, yeah. He said, you know, your left eyebrow. I'm not lying to you. This is what he said. Your left eyebrow, there's like a hair. And it... He, he said, it shows up on the cameras. You, you just know where to hide. And, it's, and he says, you, I said, well, should I cut it? No, no, no. You, don't cut it. It's going to grow back. You, you need to pluck that out. And, and I said, whoa, 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 whoa. how will I know which one? He said, well, because it's a different color than the rest. It's the color of the hair on your head. Are you kidding me? Like, even my eyebrows are going white now? He says, yeah, I'm telling you. And so I said, well, I don't see it. I don't know what you said. Here's it, here's it. He said, you need to go stand in front of a mirror. You'll see it. That's what he said to me. And so uh, I went to the closest mirror I could find and closed the door behind me because this is rather personal and private. And oh, my goodness. There was this long, white, gray thing ruining my otherwise flawless appearance. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for agreeing. Oh, for 
Oh, no. That is not. We really need Christians behind the cameras. I'm telling you. So anyway, I, uh, I'm looking in the mirror. I see it. But I got to tell you, even though I was looking in the mirror, the mirror did nothing as far as changing and transforming it. The mirror didn't remove this unsightly. Ron thought it was unsightly. I thought it was dignified, to tell you the truth. The mirror did nothing to transform my appearance, my being. I had to take action. The mirror only, only revealed to me that action was necessary. Something, I had to remove something. I had to pluck it out. The mirror wasn't going to, the mirror was laughing at me just like you were. So that's what the law does. There's nothing wrong with a mirror as long as you let it serve its intended purpose. It's to reflect to you what you look like. It doesn't lie. Neither does the law of God. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not defect. How could it be defective? Its source is almighty God. It's his heart. It's his mind. It's his ways. It's everything about him. The law shows us, oh my goodness, deity is not morally neutral. He's intensely good. He's right. He does no wrong. There is no sin that abides with him. The law of God tells us it. There's nothing wrong with it, but good night. When I match myself up to it, I got a real, real problem. It doesn't change me. It just shows me what I look like, how morally un, uh, 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 unattractive I am, how defective I am, what ethical flaws I have, what, what, what a tendency I have to think sin and speak sin and even commit sin. The law should, once the law says thou shalt not, and I find myself doing what it says not to do, oh, now the law has just shown me what my nature, what my nature is. So God made no mistake. He gave it to us as a precursor to grace. Did you know that? He gave us the law so that we could see we can't be right with God through it. And that we would cry out to him for mercy. And that he would provide for us another means by which we could be right with him. And he did. There is hope for us in spite of, in spite of our nature. And it is going to be introduced to, introduced to us now in verse 21. Look at it, beginning with the first two words, but now. Ah, I just love those words. It means a, a marked, exciting, dramatic contrast with what has just been said. Paul has taken pains to talk to us about our sin, not just in chapter 3, chapter 2 as well. All of us, Jews, Gentile, old, young, male, female, black, white, everybody. I mean, we have this in common, folks. It's human nature. It's just, we have a sin nature. You see what I mean? Paul's taking pains to show us, and it's really, it hasn't been a, a pleasant topic of conversation. It weighs us down and, and all the rest. We like to think better of ourselves than, than we actually are. And, and then we begin to think, oh, my goodness, if, if my goodnesses are not going to stack up, make me right with God and all the rest, and there's no hope for me, and then, then I get this, but now, oh, no. Paul says, there's a contrast. He, he said, no, 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 there's another way apart from the law by which you can be okay with God. You can't be okay with God by trying to live a moral and ethical life, by trying to live to any, any religion's code of ethics. You're going to violate it just the way you are. But don't worry. But now, apart from the law. Oh, you mean there's hope for a guy like me, for people like you, apart from the law? Yeah, yeah. But now, apart from the law. 
the righteousness of God. That means in this text, in this context, the means by which we can be right with God. But now, apart from the law, the way to be right with God has been manifested. (gasps) Now, not always, now the way to be right with God has been revealed, has been manifested, independent of the law, independent of any system of good conduct and morals and ethics, independent of human effort, independent of all religious behavior, independent of all that, the righteousness of God has been manifested. We can't be made right with God through our own efforts. We all fall short. But there is a way to be right with God. And according to this text, it has been manifested, shown, displayed, revealed. And what is that way to be right with God? It's the way of the cross. John 1, 29. A fellow named John, the baptizer, the immerser, one day saw the figure of another. John pointed his followers to him. And he said of him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John said, Look to what has been manifested, displayed, exhibited. Here's the evidence Here's the way to be right with God. Apart from the law, it has been manifested. Behold, there he is, the Lamb of God. The sacrificial Lamb of God. Oh, he, he will come again as the Lion of Judah. But, but, but he came first as the sacrificial Lamb. Behold, the Lamb of God. You have the law, but behold, the Lamb. That's what John said. The way to be right with God is the way of the cross. Take a look at him. Behold him. He, he is Jesus. He's the Lamb of God who came to take away our sin. The law has revealed our sin. It can't take it away. Jesus came to do that. God's cleansing agent has been manifested. And here's the deal. To my people in this day, Paul's day, and today, it's a shock to our system. We should be ashamed of this. But it's a shock to our system to find out uh, that God's way to be right with him, apart from the law, is found in our own Hebrew scriptures. It's a shock because we don't even read them. It's a shock to us to find out that this isn't New Testament Gentile stuff. This is Hebrew scriptures, Old Testament, even then God provided a way apart from the law. He told the prophets about it in the Old Testament that there's a way to be right with him that has nothing to do with the law. The law can't make us right with him. It's through a suffering servant, through a Messiah to come. And that's why Paul says back in Romans 3 right here, all this is being witnessed. Look what he says, by the law and the prophets. That's what it says right there. That expression, the law and the prophets, is an idiom for the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. Paul said, what I'm telling you, Jewish and Gentile people, that though you can't be made right with God by the law, your own effort, good deeds, all that stuff, religion, I'm telling you, God has provided a way by which you can be right. That way has been manifested in the New Testament, but it has been witnessed in the Old Testament, by the law and the prophets. Now wait, does this mean the Old Testament scriptures told the people in that day about Jesus? 
Not exactly. It does mean, however, that the Old Testament scriptures told the people that the way to be right with God was through a suffering Messiah. But it is the New Testament that tells us who that Messiah is. They did not know this in the, in the Old Testament. That the suffering Messiah would come and was necessary, was witnessed in the Old, but manifested in the New. Here you have the unity of Old and New Testaments. It's one author, you know. In the Old, he had his prophets and writers witness to the fact that the means to be right with him apart from the law was through the suffering of a Messiah. And in the new covenant, we know his name. What's his name? Yeah, you see, you see. So Paul says the righteousness of God has been manifested in the New Testament, but he also says that the righteousness of God through faith in a suffering Messiah has been witnessed by the law and the prophets in the Old Testament. Witnessed in the Old Testament, that's what the text says, manifested in the New and just to prove it to you, several New Testament passages say this very thing. Let me just read this one to you quickly. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. It's striking. 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11. As to this salvation, the prophets, that's Old Testament, the prophets who prophesied, where'd they do that? In the Old Testament. As to this salvation, the one you and I enjoy, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. This is overwhelming. God's spirit comes upon the prophets in the Old Testament. Moved by his spirit, they write to scripture. That's how we got scripture. Men moved. That's inspiration. Moved by the spirit. But even as they were writing, they didn't quite understand the fullness of what they were writing. So First Peter says, they looked with deliberate intent. They made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what is the name of the person? What is the time of his coming? They knew, oh God, you are so good. You put the spirit, it says spirit of Christ, that means Messiah. You put the spirit of Messiah in us. We know it's the coming of a Messiah who will suffer and die for our sin. He's the way to be made right with you. We know we can't do it through Torah, the law of Moses. We're not good enough to stand on our own self-righteousness. We know, oh God, and we believe in this, and oh, we'd like to know his name. Oh, and we'd like to know things about him. When is he coming? What is he going to do? Where is he from? Where is he going to grow up? What is he like? That's what First Peter said. Number they were the witnesses themselves in the Old Testament. But they didn't have the full manifestation of what even they were saying until we got the New Testament. Pretty amazing, it seems to me. There's another even more amazing passage of Scripture. It's Isaiah chapter 53. It's overwhelming. Twelve verses. Overwhelming. Written 700 plus years before this Jesus was born a babe in Bethlehem. 
the event we're, we're, we're getting ready to celebrate. The Christmas event. 700 years before he was enfleshed, lived, did miracles, taught, suffered, died, rose up from death and ascended to his father's right side. Long before, 700 years, Isaiah 53 was written. And I believe, as I'll bet most of you do, it's written about him. It's so powerful <laughs> that many of our rabbis do not allow us to read it. When I was 13 years old, I was getting ready for what we call bar mitzvah, son of the law. Meaning when you're 13, your parents are no longer responsible for you before God. You is responsible for you before God. It's called the bar mitzvah. And it's like a big deal for Jewish people. It's a rite of passage. Really a big deal. You, you study under a rabbi for it, you know, and you, you learn Hebrew and you learn to chant the passage of Scripture that you're going to read in a synagogue in front of like a whole crowd of people. I remember on the day uh, I was to, I, I was real small then. Boy, I've changed quite a bit. <laughs> but I was real small then, and I couldn't see over the, they called it the bima. It was a podium. I couldn't see over. So the rabbi had to stop the service and send someone into the neighborhood and get me uh, a milk carton. Those are the days you used to deliver milk, you know, a wooden milk carton, and he had a guy bring it. Everyone was just waiting there for this to happen, you know, what the rabbis say, go. And so then here comes this milk carton, and then he said, get up on it. And so I stood up on the milk carton, and uh, there you have it. So here's the deal. How do you know when you're a kid who's going to have a bar mitzvah what passage of Scripture you're going to read? Well, we Jews divide the Hebrew Scriptures according to the calendar. So every Saturday has a new portion of Scripture that you read. It's, it's your annual schedule of Scripture reading. So uh, my birthday is November 4th, and so... On the Saturday closest to it, there's a designated passage of Scripture that you read. After I became a Christian, um, I was just curious about the whole deal. And I went back to check it out. And I found out that the passage I, was, I should have read on my bar mitzvah was not the one I ended up reading. The one I should have read was Isaiah chapter 53. But the rabbi didn't give it to me. He skipped it and gave me Isaiah 54. Why, said I, and what right does he have to toy with Scripture? And I went back and I read Isaiah 53 and I found out, now I get it. He's afraid of the truth. Because it is a neon sign about who the Messiah is. Only a closed-minded, non-thinking person could see it any other way. Well, let me tell you something. I'm free in Christ Jesus now, and I aim to read Isaiah 53. Would you join me? Here we go. Check it out. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who? Who's asking those two questions? Jews who found the Messiah are. In their day, they found that apart from the law, there is a lamb. An ultimate lamb, typified but the lamb, by the lambs offered in sacrifice. 
But there is an ultimate lamb, a divine lamb, who a gracious God will send to suffer and die for sin. They believed in the coming of this one. And then they said, who else will believe our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And now I see why they asked that question, because of what it says in verse 2 of Isaiah 53. For he grew up. That's what it says. First of all, we're talking about he here, right? We're not talking about a concept, a philosophy, a religion. We're talking about a, that's a masculine, singular pronoun. He, that's a person. He grew up. Ah, now I got it. Most of the Jews don't like this. That doesn't look like a Messiah. The Messiah doesn't grow up. The Messiah is. He, the Messiah is divine, right? God doesn't grow. And so already they're beginning to reject what their own prophet Isaiah is saying. For he grew up, and then it says, like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. But, but, like a root out of parched? You can't expect anything special to grow up out of parched ground? This doesn't look like a royal triumphant beginning and start for the Messiah, the victorious Messiah. They're looking to. He grew up like a root at a parched ground. Not only that, he has no stately form or majesty. He didn't look like Yul Brynner or Charlton Heston in the movies. You kidding me? He looked like a Jewish guy with curly hair and dark skin. I'm telling you, he didn't have blonde hair, blue eyes. I mean, no offense to my Swedish brethren. But I mean, but that's not the way. He didn't look like, if he went, listen to me, if he walked into a crowded room, no one would get up and give him a seat. He looked like a Jewish guy, probably short. <laughs> he had no form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Verse 3, he was despised. Not only was he not attractive to people, he was despised by them and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised. We didn't esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He went through all kinds of stuff, we didn't know it was for us. We thought it was because of his own sin. God punished him. God, oh no. Jesus didn't need to be punished. There was no sin in him. It was our sin that he, that he carried, don't, don't you see? Then it says, verse 5, but he was pierced through. <gasps> pierced through? That's an allusion to crucifixion which wasn't even a form of capital punishment when Isaiah wrote. Did you know that? The Persians invented it and the Romans perfected it, but it didn't exist 700 years before it happened. It didn't happen. Are you kidding me? But Isaiah knew he was pierced. Jesus was pierced through. There were nails, folks. Pierced through his wrists, his ankles. Isaiah saw it. How? By inspiration, don't you see? Isaiah didn't fully understand. He didn't know specifically who this Jesus was, but he knew he was coming. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, he was whipped. We are healed. He was pierced. He was crushed. He was scourged. Then verse 6, man, this is a killer. Those of us who went to Israel on our missions trip, we memorized this one. 
We've memorized this one. We just wanted it in our hearts and mind. We wanted God to give us a chance to share it. All of us, man, that's everybody, like sheep have gone astray. Each of us, in case you think you're an exception to all of us, each of us really nails you. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Oh, my goodness. You have all of us, that's collective, that's humanity. Then you have someone called the Lord, and the Lord has caused the iniquity, our sin, to fall on someone referred to as him. So you have the us, then you have the Lord, then you have the him. The Lord is God the Father. The him is the suffering Messiah. That's the Lord Jesus right there, folks. You know what that is? That's the gospel in the Old Testament. Don't you see? This is the gospel being witnessed by the law and the prophets. I mean, it isn't fully explained and revealed and manifested until the New Testament. I got you. But God is showing the cross was not an afterthought. The cross was his solution to our sin problem from before time. None of our stuff took God by surprise. You may be disappointed in finding out what a wretch you are, but God knew you to be that person from before time. You're not letting him down. He didn't have a higher expectation of you. He knew you would sin and provided for it. And just to show us, nothing took him by surprise. He had the law and the prophets start spilling the beans long before his plan was fully manifested through Jesus on the cross. Verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. Isn't that true? Like a lamb led to its slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. The New Testament tells us the Lord was silent before Caiaphas, silent before the chief priests and elders. He was silent before Pilate. He was silent before Herod. And Isaiah saw it coming. He didn't know the specifics. At all. He longed to know. You know what Isaiah longed to know? He longed to know the things you and I know. Isn't that something? That's what he did. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? I'm asking myself the first time I read this. Maybe you are too. Who is this him? Good night. Any thinking person will come up with the right answer. Verse 9. His grave was assigned to be with wicked men, yet with a rich man in his death. The New Testament tells us of a man named Joseph of Arimathea. He was a disciple of the Lord Jesus. He came to Pilate to ask for his body after he had been murdered. Pilate, for some reason, gave in to his request and released the body of the murdered Jesus to Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph was a rich man, and he had a tomb, new. No one had been laid in it yet. It was carved out of the rock there in Jerusalem. This is quite typical. That was the place in which the Lord's body was laid. That's what Isaiah said would happen with a rich man. Why did the Lord, why was Joseph of Arimathea necessary? Because the Lord's family is up in Galilee. They didn't have a burial plot in Jerusalem. They were fishing people, carpenters. They didn't have any money to pull this off. The father made the burial arrangements for the son. Isaiah saw it coming, but he didn't know the specifics. Listen, you can go to Israel. We were there just not too long ago. 
you can see a tomb dating from this time. Was it the tomb in which the body of the Lord Jesus was raised? Maybe. I don't know. Nobody knows. We can't say this for sure. We don't want to say it for sure. We, we love the fact that it's empty. I'll tell you that. But it could very well have been one like what we're seeing described right here. Verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. What? A father being pleased to send his son to die? Yeah. You know, that whole concept is so offensive to our sensibilities. You know why? We underestimate the irrational love of God the Father for us. We really don't get it. That's the biggest battle for us. Not to underestimate the Father's irrational love. You know why? We don't love us. We know what we're made of. We try to fake it and fool one another, but we know what we're made of. Later, we're going to be alone with, with ourselves, right? We don't like being alone with ourselves. We don't make good company. We don't think God wants to be with us for that. See, but it's the irrational. It's not based on human reason. It's based on his character. God is love. He doesn't do love. God is love. And therefore, the Father, for us, was pleased to crush him if he would render himself as a guilt offering for our sin. I ask you, who was this speaking about 700 years before the Christmas event? You tell me. The Father arranged all this according to his predetermined plan. So the Son was put to death. Boy, death is final, isn't it? No. It isn't the end of things. Not for the Lord Jesus. Look what the text says. He will see his offspring. What? But he died. And he died childless. Did he not? Jesus died and Jesus died childless. So how is he going to live to see anything, let alone offspring? You know what this means? It means <laughs> he lives, though he died. It means resurrection from death. Introduced in Isaiah. And you know who his offspring are? We is. Us's. Spiritual offspring. Death didn't have the last word. He beat up on the last enemy, death. He's not going to see the inside of a grave in eternity. Up from the grave, he arose. You know what he's going to see one day? Us. We're the offspring birthed by his death. We're his spirit. I'm sorry, I'm making babies cry. I'm so sorry. We're his offspring. This means there could be a generation of believers, 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 believers. The Lord is gathering, filling up his household with believers, Jews, Gentiles, anybody who will is saved. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name. We are his spiritual offspring. And the text says the father will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Folks, Isaiah 53 is magnificent. Could I encourage you to go buy this book? Not right now because I'm not finished, but soon. We, we brought this to Israel. Where we asked God, God, give us a chance to give this away. We just want to give it away. It's a good book. It's written by a good guy. It's in our bookstore. I encourage you. It's all about Isaiah 53. It has a list of prophecies, like what I'm going over in the back. It's an easy read. Maybe God will give you uh, someone to give it away to. Anyway, it's in the bookstore. And then here's something else. It's kind of a weird time for an advertisement, huh? But, it, but, but this is a great thing. It's 100 prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. Look, you open it up. 
And here, here, here it is. You know, someone tells you, how do you know Jesus is the Messiah? It's just, you, you, you say it's not by chance. Look at the prophecies he fulfilled. Look at it right here. Right here, it's in the bookstore. It doesn't cost much. Tell them Stuart sent you. <laughs> Actually, we started a new section in the bookstore. I'd like you to go by and check it out. It's called Jewish Foundations. I'm not lying to you. That's what it's called, Jewish Foundations. Why? Because we ought to know the Jewish foundations of the faith because the faith is built on Jewish foundations, you see. So it's a really nice section in there. We're adding to it resources day by day. There's a lot of good stuff. These two resources are in there. Uh, you might want to go by and just browse through it. They've decorated it. It's beautiful for the holidays. Anyway, Isaiah 53. The book is about that, and it'll help you. But here's, I'll help you a little bit now. Verse 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he'll see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and as he will bear their iniquities. In the final verse in Isaiah 53, listen. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Who is that speaking of? Do you have a Jewish friend? Ask him to read Isaiah 53. Yeah, but does it read differently in their Bible? No. <laughs> it reads the same. Isaiah, here's the point, folks. The father put the son in the mediating position. The law and the prophets, the Old Testament, witnessed this before it happened. The son accepted this position and interceded us before, for us before the father. Jesus got right in the thick of things, right in the middle of things, as a mediator between us and holy God. He stood in the gap. Between us and holy God. It's a gap caused, not by God, but by us, by our sin. And he filled up the gap with his outstretched, nail-pierced arms as he was impaled on the cross. And he made a way, sort of like a bridge, for us by faith. That means trust. To make our way in right standing to Almighty God, what the law could not lead us to do, what no good behavior and no religious code of conduct could lead us to do, Jesus could lead us to do. He's a bridge. It's like he takes our hand, and he takes his Father's hand, and he joins us together. And we are in right standing with the Father because of the merits of the Son. And this was all declared, witnessed. Paul said in the Old Testament by the law, and the prophets, the coming suffering Savior, suffering servant. That's who we read about in Isaiah 53. Is declared in the Old Testament and has been clearly manifested in the New Testament. We know his name. We know all about him. We know the manner of his death for our sin and all the rest. So how were people saved before Christ? It's a question maybe you've been asked. How were people saved in the Old Testament? <laughs> the answer actually is easy. They were saved in exactly the same way all people who are saved are saved. <laughs> they were saved by trusting in the goodness and in the grace of God to send a Savior who would suffer and die and rise up from death for our sin. That's how people were saved then. That's how people are saved now. Have you been saved that way?
have you been saved? By faith. In the goodness, not your own, in the goodness and graciousness of God to send a Savior. Isaiah spoke of him. You know him better than Isaiah. Have you put your faith in the fact that the Father, God, with whom you have to make do, and you have no defense, your mouth is going to be, you wouldn't have a word to say in your defense. Have you put your faith in the fact that God the Father, because he's good and gracious, sent a suffering servant, the Savior, Jesus, to pay the penalty for your sin, so that, not just like a mirror, but like an overwhelming cleansing agent, when the Father looks upon you, he sees you just as if you have not sinned. Oh, make no mistake about it. You have and so have I. But wouldn't it be something to stand in the presence of the judge of all the earth as if we had not sinned? In other words, what about God declaring this verdict at the end of the trial? Innocent. <laughs> Acquitted. On what basis? On the basis of, of what happened on the cross. The way of the way of the cross. So I ask you, people in the Old Testament, people in the New Testament, people today, everybody's saved the same way. Faith, trust in the provision of a good and gracious God who has sent his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus, to suffer and die in our place. Have you accepted what he did for you? All this stuff, I was raised in a Christian home, my wife's a Christian. I go to church. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. I believe that what you did, you did for me. And you did it because I needed you to. And you're gracious. And if you didn't do what you did for me, die for my sin I'd have to pay the penalty for it myself. That would be eternal dying that would not end. Instead, I look forward to eternal living because as Isaiah said, you will live to see your offspring. Make me to be one of your offspring. Birth in me the new birth. Have you ever heard the expression to be born again? Don't you love that one? Let me be born again, a babe, yours. Let me be connected. Let me be part of your family. Come into my life. Make a difference. The likes of which a mirror can't do. This smudge is all over me. The mirror can't. I can rub myself up against the mirror. It'll just hurt and cut. That won't work. Will you make me clean? Though my sins are as scarlet, make me white as snow. And so fill me with your presence that I live to tell others about you until the day of your return. Have you asked Jesus into your life? If not, why not now? Lord Jesus, in just a few seconds, you might be pleased to lay hold of additional members of the forever family who will be part of the spiritual offspring burst by what you have done. 
Only you can save. We talk about it to others. We must. But only you can make it happen by your grace. Would you impress upon the hearts of those who are not yet saved their need, their sin, and how gracious you are to have provided a solution for it. Lord, we pray you would adopt into your family even tonight new ones who rejoice in having their sins forgiven in being part of your family and rejoicing in the fact that you came. It's the Christmas event. as a gorgeous, beautiful, innocent babe to grow so as to suffer and die. Oh, God in heaven, you desire for none to perish but for all to be saved. Let it be that there not be one person here who leaves tonight without being persuaded of his or her salvation. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 